Bethesda. The incident there is recorded for us in John chapter 5. We'll take a look at it. Uh, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Here's how it starts. After these things, which begs the question, what things? Well, I think it's the sum total of what we have read thus far. All of the things the Lord said and did thus far, and which John has presented to us after these things. Some of these things are the cleansing of the temple, you recall, in Jerusalem, uh, the transformation of water into wine at Cana, and most recently, the healing of the royal official's son, who was deathly ill. He was at Capernaum, and the Lord pronounced healing from afar on him. He was in Cana at the time. After all of these things, it says there was a feast of the Jews. Uh, the Bible tells us in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, there are seven principal feasts of the Jews. In this particular case, we can't know for sure which specific feast is in view. Some say Passover, some say Tabernacles. We don't know. But there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, during three of the feasts of Israel, all Jewish males were required to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And from any direction, when you went to Jerusalem, you're always going up for a few reasons. It's high in elevation, relatively speaking, but also it was a spiritual ascent. In fact, when people went up to Jerusalem, they sang psalms or songs of ascent. In fact, they're recorded for us today. They're labeled that in the book of Psalms in the Bible. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem in verse 2 tells us, now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. So if you can imagine ancient Jerusalem to be a city surrounded by a wall, much like the old city of Jerusalem is today, to gain entrance into the city and to make your exit, there had to be gates in the walls of Jerusalem. One of the gates, one close to the temple in the northern part of the city, is called the Sheep Gate. That's what John is telling us about now. Why is it called the Sheep Gate? Well, shepherds would bring their sheep through this gate, principally, and there, uh, at the pools, they would drink water, and they would also be prepared to be offered in sacrifice in the temple. And so this was a pool of water surrounded by covered colonnades, porches, uh, under which many people, we'll read about them in a second, were, were, were present. And one of the sides of these porches, at least one was open so as to face the pool of water. And it says there was a pool there, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy. Whenever you see the word Beth, that means house, like Bethlehem, Bethlehem, house of bread. So here's Bethesda, the house of mercy. It had five porticos. In 1888, 
archaeological work was being done in the area uh, at the ruins of a beautiful crusader church called St. Anne's Church. Some of you have been there. If you have, you'll never forget it. Uh, you go there and you sing, and the acoustics are absolutely beautiful. St. Anne's Church was being um, sort of renovated in 1888, and in the process, the archaeologists discovered there the Pool of Bethesda, and it fit the description John gives to a T. So that's the site that's visited by tour groups today. And the text says in verse 3, in these, in these porticos, these covered porches, lay a multitude of those who were sick and blind and lame and withered. And then it says, let me ask you a question. From this point on in the text, do you have anything in brackets or parentheses or any notation as you look to your Bible? Do, do things change a little bit there? Is there any particular note from around verse 3b through verse 4? Anyone have anything like that? I guess I'm the only one who does. Well, see, see, mine is in brackets. See where it says waiting for the moving of the waters? That's in brackets, as is the rest, all of verse 4. Look, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred up the water, and whoever then was first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, I'll tell you why. You may have that in parentheses or something like brackets as I do. Uh, uh, from verse 3b through 4, I'm sorry to bring this up because it'll disturb some of you, but don't be disturbed. Um, that passage is not found in the earliest manuscripts. Now, you may not be understand, uh, understanding what I'm saying when I say manuscripts. The Bible we have today is substantiated, confirmed, and corroborated by thousands of manuscripts. We have a very, very reliable text today. But when you line up all the manuscripts, they don't read exactly the same. This is one of the areas in which they vary. So before A.D. 400, no manuscript contains what you're reading here, the second part of verse 3 and all of verse 4. Now, that should not shake your faith. How would we explain it if it's actually not part of inspired Scripture? Well, there probably was a natural phenomenon there, a stirring up of the waters through subterranean springs. And this gives you an insight into the superstitious thinking of the people of the day. They imagined when they saw this bubbling water that perhaps an angel of God stirred it up and that if you with haste get in there, it will have healing effects. So it is thought that a scribe or copyists long after the event explained for us the occurrence of the natural bubbling up of the waters by attributing it to an angel of God who came to stir it up from time to time. Now, that's not a big issue. It doesn't shake anyone's doctrinal position. It shouldn't threaten your faith in any respect, but I have to be honest with you and tell you that peculiar passage is probably not in the original. At any rate, we do know that the rule of the pool was essentially every man for himself. At the pool of Bethesda, 
the house of mercy, uh, we see very little evidence of mercy. These were desperate people, kind of first come, first serve. And so when the water was, was stirred up, first one in, according to their superstition, was healed. And a certain man was there. We don't know his name. Certain man was there who had been 38 years, my translation says 38 years, in his sickness. To me, that's very uh, significant. And this is emphasizing the fact, not just that he was afflicted for 38 years, but he was actually living in the atmosphere of it all. It had so overcome him, it became his essential identity. We don't know how old the man was. If he was uh, afflicted this way from birth, then then he's been living this way. He's 38 years old. It's probably likely that he's older than this. And for 38 years, he's, he's stricken in some particular way. He's in his sickness. That's all he knows. The premier identifying uh, distinctive of his life is that he's a lame man who somehow found his way to this place where people thought if you got into the bubbling water when they were stirred up, you might find healing. In desperation, his made, he made his way there. Probably some friends brought him and essentially deposited him in this place. Now it says in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. This is interesting to me. The Lord saw him in the crowd and seemingly knew all about him. How? I mean, the Lord wasn't even born, uh, uh, you know, uh, when all this happened to this, to this particular man. How did the Lord know all about him? Uh, folks, John is showing us that this Jesus is God in flesh. He's omniscient. He possesses that attribute and all the attributes of Almighty God. And so the Lord knew everything about this man, and he addresses him here. Folks, this is mercy at the house of mercy, that Almighty God, transcendent deity, God enfleshed, would come and have eyes for this particular afflicted man. Now, I have to tell you, this place, Pools of Bethesda, is frequently visited by tourists to Israel uh, today. It's a good place to go and visit. However, in the day in which this text was written, it wasn't on the tour agenda at all. In fact, most people in this day would have avoided this particular place. Remember, it was the sheep gate. Sheep went through there. Uh, sheep leave deposits all over the place. They make noises and they smell. And not, not only that, where there are sheep, there are shepherds. And I don't know if you know this, but shepherds at this point in, uh, uh, in the society were low men on the totem pole. You would not want your uh, sister to marry one. The testimony of a shepherd in a court of law was highly suspect. They moved from place to place. And because of their contact, close proximity with animals, they were often uh, considered ceremonially defiled. They couldn't really even participate in temple ceremonies. And so this was not a place where most people would go to. Listen, on top of all of this, it's not just sheep and shepherds. We're told there were sick people there. There were suffering people there. There would be moans and groans and all the rest. It was an uncomfortable place to be. And one 
if one wandered into this area, uh, that one himself or herself would run the risk of becoming ceremonially defiled by contact, you see, with all these people because it was thought in that day that it was sin uh, on the part of the afflicted one that led to his or her ailment. And so this was a place to be avoided, which makes it all the more remarkable that this is the very place where the Lord Jesus, is, is he your Lord? I hope he is, uh, because you have a wonderful Lord if he is. He made it his business to go to this place. He wasn't concerned about being defiled. He was interested in providing cleansing and healing. And so the Lord Jesus, once again, uh, crosses social barriers in order to minister, in this case, to one man in particular. Here we have a demonstration, you see, of mercy at the house of mercy. And he said to him, do you wish to get well? Isn't that an odd question? Couldn't we answer it for the Lord if we were arrogant and obnoxious? Couldn't we say, Lord, I know the answer. Of course he wishes to get well. He's been in his affliction for 38 years. He hates being the way he is, of course. The answer to your question is yes. He, he very much wants to get well. But the Lord is smarter than we are, isn't he? He's very perceptive, and he knows about human nature. And so in effect, he's saying to this man, he's asking this man, are you willing to change? That's really what he's saying. Are you willing to change? And change, perhaps you can understand this, is a scary thing. Uh, for most of us, we would rather stay put, stuck with the old and familiar, even though it's not really serving our needs, than leave behind what we know of in order to move into uncharted territory, even if that territory has the promise of health and a better lifestyle. And, and so we gravitate towards the old and familiar. The Lord knew this particular thing. And so as bad sometimes as our current situation is, at least it's familiar territory to us. There are no surprises. We've lived this way for so long. And uh, sometimes we can find ourselves being more comfortable in our present misery than in taking the steps we need uh, to have a better lifestyle. So the Lord's question was really appropriate. Um, a thought came to my mind. Years ago, I was serving as a counselor in a hospital in the medical center, and it was a psychiatric unit, and uh, I worked with drug and alcohol, uh, folks who had drug and alcohol problems. And a man was brought in by uh, the police. Uh, he was being involuntarily committed there's that procedure, I guess they still exist today, where someone, if you can show just cause, can be pulled off the street, put into a psychiatric facility for a brief period of time until a judge evaluates and determines whether to continue to hold him or not. And this man's wife was behind it. She had him pulled off the street because he had developed, he was a successful businessman here in Houston, but he had developed a cocaine habit. And, he, and she felt it was destroying him and their family. And so she did a very difficult thing, as you can imagine. She called the police and filled out the papers and got him pulled from his place of business, which he owned, in front of all his employees and all the rest, and brought into the psych hospital. And he was assigned to me. He was not happy at all. 
and uh, didn't want to joke around or anything like that. And I, I tried to reason with him to tell him, look, he was just fuming. I said, you, you, you can be as angry as you want, but it doesn't make any sense. I don't have the authority to let you go. You can't get yourself out of here. Um, we got you at least for three days. I think that's what it was in those days. We got you for at least three days. Let's make a deal. Why don't we make the best of the time? Look, you don't like me, and I'm not so uh, sure I'm going to end up liking you, but we're kind of stuck with each other at least for three days. Let's work on this problem that you have, and let's, let, let's try to see if we can get you some help. Do you agree? He said yes. Well, not only did I have him for three days, he decided to stay longer. And uh, he accepted the Lord. I shared Christ with him, he, uh, the divine counselor in the course of things, and he accepted the Lord. And he stayed on for about three weeks, and we worked together. And then we worked out a discharge plan, and his wife would come and visit. They'd have times together, and we'd work together. And she was rejoicing and happy, and he was on the verge of being a much better husband and father, and so he was discharged, and you would think uh, things would be going good, but uh, mysteriously, the lady, in various ways, I don't need to go into detail, undermined his gains. She undermined his gains, and he, end up use, he ended up using again. Now, he said, why in the world would... Would she want to undermine the gains? Well, because he changed so much, it obligated her to change as well. He was no longer the weak and needy one. He was assuming the role of uh, lovingly leading her as spiritual leader. He was beginning to be responsible with finances and all the rest and be a better decision maker and so on. You would think these are the things that that this lady would have loved, and in a sense she did, but it was very terrifying for her now at this point in her life, she was a middle-aged lady, to have to change, you see? He, he was getting stronger, and that means uh, she would have to uh, reinvent herself. She was used to caring for a weak man as if it was mother to son, and now it would have to be husband and wife. That's a scary thing. She'd not been that way before. And even though it held promise and looked like a good thing, it terrified her. And so she found ways, I wouldn't say consciously. Uh, I don't think she was even aware of it. She found ways to undermine his well-being so as to reduce him again to the weak, needy little boy so that she could remain the caregiving mom instead of the instead of the wife. And so uh, the Lord knows about all these things, and he therefore asked the question, which on the surface seems unusual, but it makes sense. Do you really wish to be made well? Are you really willing to change? If you're not willing to change, just say so. There's no sense in us speaking any further. And so uh, the Lord knew what he was doing in this particular uh, case, he knows that many of us really don't want to be changed because it could be costly. Folks, a beggar at that time and in that part of the world made a pretty good living. Um, uh, Jewish religious people thought that they got points with God, you know, by giving alms to the poor. So this was uh, uh, not a bad way to be sustained. Think about it. If he was suddenly healed 
and no longer had grounds to beg, what's he going to do? He's a middle-aged man. In that society, what is he going to do? Is he going to go back to school and study computers or something at this point in his life? And so the Lord's question was something he was really thinking about. I don't exactly like being carried in here on my bed and deposited like a piece of property and material. On the other hand, if I'm better and can stand on my own two feet, who's going to take care of me? I'll have to take care of my, I'll have to take care of myself. And so I don't think he was so certain that he really wanted to be made well. You see, if he was made well, he would lose his closest friend. His friend was his affliction. Now, I, I know this sounds a little odd, but uh, I know a little something about human nature. I, I've been one most of my life, and I, I just happen to know sometimes we get comfortable, very comfortable with our discomfort. And um, we enter into the atmosphere of our, of our discomfort, whatever it may be, an emotional affliction or physical or whatever it is, and we're familiar with it to such an extent that it, the malady, the affliction, that burden actually is our closest friend, and we don't want to say goodbye to it. So the Lord very perceptively asks, do you really want to be changed? Because there could be no change for us if we are content to stay as we are. So in verse 7, here's what the sick man did. The sick man answered him, sir... Look at this. I have no men to put me into the pool. Well, yeah, he did. I mean, some men brought him to the pool. Okay. He, I have no men to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Folks, you know what that is? That's the whine and complaint of somebody who's been sick for a long time and who has given up Hope. That's what that is. I'll tell you what this is. This is, we can call it the yes, but game. So the Lord says, do you wish to be made well? Yes, but I have no one who can bring me. And when I try, someone else gets before me. Uh, um, I, I counsel with people like this sometimes, and the prognosis is not very good at all. When people play the yes, but game, you make suggestions. Have you tried this? Have you thought about this? Have you, you know, you know what, what about this course of action? Yeah, but eh, those are people who have become way too comfortable with their malady, and they do not wish to be made well. So that's what this guy is doing. And he does what a lot of us are prone to do. He's attributing his present situation to his dire situation to others. He's putting the blame on others. I, you know, I try to go, but someone, always, someone else gets there before me. Yeah. Uh, you know who's really affecting me? I, 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 you know who the cause of my present situation is? These others who get in line before me. They take my place in line. Uh, uh, folks, people affect us. I understand this for good or for ill. Uh, but it's a bad thing when we allow our destiny and lifestyle to be affected by any other person to this extent that we remain stuck, sick, 
paralyzed, no forward movement. It's good to understand how you got to be who you are, uh, but to excuse present misbehavior on the basis of what people in the past have done for you, no, you're playing the yes but game, just like this particular, this particular guy. And so that's what he does, and uh, here's how the Lord handled it. Verse eight, Jesus said to him, arise, take up your pallet and walk. Boy, he just cuts right through it. That's a very quick counseling session right there. He just tell, you know what he does? He commands him to do the very thing he can't do. Hmm. Why is that? Because all real change requires the empowerment of God. Uh, the Lord didn't say to this man, do, are you willing to change yourself? <laughs> he said, do you wish to be made well? And so the Lord is commanding him in the power of his word to do the very thing he can't do. Now, I understand why the Lord told him to get up. And I understand why the Lord told him to walk. But I don't really understand why the Lord also commanded him to take up his pallet. Now, the pallet is kind of like a flat, kind of like a bedroll, you might say. Now, soon we're going to see uh, one of the reasons why the Lord told him to carry it is that he wanted to antagonize the Jewish religious leaders of the day who had a variety of rules and regs for the Sabbath uh, that the Lord was disgusted with. I know that's part of it. But I think another reason why the Lord told him to take up his pallet is this. You know, for 38 years, his bed had been carrying him. But now, as a result of the powerful, merciful, authoritative words of Jesus, he now is in a position to carry his bed. Things are different. Now, I think the Lord wanted him to take his bed with him. But the, but the, but the bed, you know, it was soiled and all the rest, and it was a sign of shame and incapacity and of a past he really would have wanted to forget. I think the Lord wanted, to take him, wanted him to take that with him as a reminder, lest he think of the good old days. They're not good old days. You keep your stinky old pallet with you. When you're tempted to go back that way to the pool of Bethesda, lying helplessly there, waiting for someone to get you into the water, and though no, though no one ever seems to do so, I want you to look at your a shame-based, soiled palate. And I want you to remember, that is not the good old days. These are the good old days. You're standing and you're walking and, and you're moving forward. And I think another reason why the Lord maybe told him to take up his palate is that people would see him carrying his palate and it would be a source of shame. Weren't you the guy who used to be with all those other needy, afflicted people at the pools of Bethesda? And this man would say, yeah, but my past doesn't call the shots in my life anymore. I'm new. Don't you love this verse? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Folks, your primary and essential identity if you're a Christian is the cross of Jesus Christ. You may have been physically or sexually abused as a young child. You may have been raped as an adult. You may have been neglected and abandoned by parents. I got all that. But those things are not your essential identity. They affect you. But your essential identity is, is the cross. You're a child of the king. And now you are carrying all that stuff you have overcome, and you are walking above it all. You're no longer a product of your past. Oh, no. 
Today is your day. Uh, Almighty God is your father. He says, I have cast all your sins behind my back. He has washed you and, and he has cleansed you and he has adopted you into his family. And he says, do not let all that stuff get to you. Rise above it. So anyway, I think that's why I told him to take up his pallet. Walk, he said. Move on. Move forward. Move ahead. Move past your past. And then notice this. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. I guess the Lord forgot. Someone should have told him. Because then the Lord would have come, you know, a couple days earlier, maybe held off. Come on Tuesday. But it came on the Sabbath. It's a Saturday. What's up with this? And it's on the Saturday the Lord told this man to take up your bed. So, so that's a bad deal, and I'll tell you why. That's a violation of the Sabbath. Oh, not according to God, according to man. The rabbis, even in Jesus' day, had come up with 39 categories of prohibited activity, stuff you couldn't do on the Sabbath, and one of it was carrying stuff. You could be carried by others to the pool of Bethesda, but you could not carry your bed yourself, so... So said the rabbis. And that's the very thing Jesus told this guy to do. Pick it up. And they're watching and they're looking. And no, he didn't forget it was Saturday. He did this on purpose because one of the things that will lead to his crucifixion is his assault, his assault on man-made legalistic religion, which puts a burden on you Almighty God never intended. Listen, I speak from personal experience as a Jewish guy here. I remember one time I was biting my fingernails, and one of my Orthodox Jewish relatives, a rabbi, rebuked me in public because there's some rabbinical law you can't bite your fingernails. I remember one time one of my relatives was being buried, and we uh, was, were at a funeral, and one of the men, a non-Jewish man, uh, picked up a shovel and kind of put some dirt fill in the hole, and one of my, another one, my rabbi cousins, I got all these rabbi cousins, uh, starts screaming at that guy because there's some rabbi law that says a non-Jew can't do that at a Jewish funeral. I mean, there's all kinds of, I remember on my bar mitzvah, I was 13 years old, you're not allowed to ride in a car on the Sabbath. So uh, my grandmother, ultra-Orthodox, and, uh, and me, hand in hand, and the rest of my family, we walked a mile to the synagogue uh, in a hailstorm in upstate New York. We're getting pelted, but I had my suit on and the whole deal, and getting pelted, and there's my grandmother getting smashed because we just thought that's, that's the way you're supposed to do. That's, that's what Jesus said. What, what the, the Sabbath was made for man, right? Not man for the Sabbath. Remember, he said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and Remember, for crying out, anyway, so the Lord is saying, uh, you know, there's like a new management in town. That's essentially what he's saying. And I came to set you free. Uh, I came to enable a relationship with you and to free you from being immersed in religion. It's not just Judaism, it's any, any world religion. They all do the same thing. They all tell you, in order to win God's favor, you gotta jump through all these hoops. Uh, Jesus says, in order to win God's favor, you have to accept me, for I am his 
beloved son <laughs> in whom he is well pleased. And so that's, that's what happened. Now, I'm sure everyone in town is saying, but what authority does this radical rabbi Jesus do this stuff? Well, verse 9, we'll close with this, tells you. And immediately the man became well. And by the way, where was the man's faith? Good night. He didn't hardly know who Jesus was. Where was the man's obedience to the laws of Moses? What are you talking about? There was no faith and there was no obedience. People say those are the prerequisites for healing today. No, it's not. I'll tell you the prerequisite for healing. When Almighty God, the God of mercy, chooses to heal, you will be healed. You have nothing to do with it, folks. So but this guy had nothing to bring to the table. But immediately, notice it wasn't progressive. Immediately, the man became well, and he took up his pallet and began to walk. Now, that is a demonstration of the authority of Jesus. What do I mean? Well, the Old Testament prophets say when Messiah shows up, the lame will walk. This is not an arbitrary miracle. No, Isaiah and many of the other prophets say this is one way you'll be, you'll be able to identify the Messiah. When the, lame, the blind see and the lame begin to walk, you'll know the Messiah. The long-awaited Messiah has showed up. And so John is showing us another sign. A sign is a pointer, pointing us to Jesus as the true Messiah. Since he's the true Messiah, he has all the authority he needs to overrule this uh, man-made religious system, rabbinical uh, Judaism. Now, do you notice that the Lord only healed one man? <laughs> Why didn't he heal all the rest of the needy people there? Uh, if, uh, folks, his primary mission was not to come and, and bring about physical healing. Did you, did you know that? That's not his primary mission. His primary mission was to affect spiritual healing. And uh, by healing one man physically, he revealed his authority to heal all the other men and women there spiritually. The big problem is not the lameness of our legs or our impaired uh, sight or our uh, nagging cough or whatever it is. That's not the big problem. The big problem is our sin-sick nature that has caused us to be so unhealthy we're separated from Almighty God. That's like the big issue. That, is the, that, that one has eternal ramifications. I mean, you get healed, that's wonderful, I rejoice with you, but you're probably going to die anyway, right? So that, that is not uh, nearly as eternally significant as to have a broken, unhealthy relationship with an otherwise unapproachably holy God repaired. And that's what the Lord did. He came to say, I have the authority. Look, I'm demonstrating my authority. I will pronounce healing upon this man so the rest of you can see, I have the authority to say to you, your sins are forgiven. That's what it's all about. Um, do you believe Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins? Make you right with God? Give you a new start? Think he has the authority to tell you, get up. Oh, take your pallet with you. I don't want you to be tempted to go back. I want you carrying it. It used to carry you. Now start walking forward. You think Jesus has the authority to do that? You think Jesus has the authority to clean up your act and move you from a place of 
incapacity, excuse-making, blame-shifting, and all the rest, and move you to healthfulness, fruitful, productive Christian living. He really does. Have you ever taken Jesus up on his word? He said, I came to give life and give it abundantly. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. That's what he said. Have you ever taken up Jesus? One time he said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's what he said. Have you ever said to Jesus, I wish to have that eternal life? Have you ever heard Jesus in so many words tug at your heart and say to you, do you wish to be changed? Do you want to be changed? Do you want to follow me? You lose some friends. Your family will think you're crazy. You'll be mocked. You'll be demeaned. You may lose your job. Who knows what? Knowing all of that, do you still wish to be made well? If the answer is I do, he says I will. He said I will. Have you ever accepted Jesus as the one who saves you from sin? He has the authority to. Nobody else can. He's demonstrated it time and time again in the five chapters we've read thus far in John's gospel. Could I implore you, take Jesus at his word. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Behold, I stand at the door and knock in such a gentlemanly way. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in, be with him, sup with him. That means intimacy. And he or she with me. Do you sense Jesus knocking at the door of your heart tonight? Not to storm in, he can, but he won't. Knocking gently. Do you feel like he has uh, your attention? (laughs) Can you hear what his invitation is? Just as I gave this man a new life, a new beginning, I made him new. It had nothing to do with promises and obedience and virtue and all the rest. It all had to do with mercy at Bethesda, the house of mercy. Can you hear Jesus saying, why don't you make this your house of mercy tonight? Why don't you say, merciful Savior, by mercy, come into my life. By mercy, forgive my sin. By mercy, make me whole. By mercy, help me to overcome the throes of my past. By mercy, help me to walk forward, make progress, and tell others of what you've done for me.